about that. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We've been studying Daniel. We're in a series called Thriving, Not Just Surviving. We're talking about shifts in our mindset, in our perspective that need to happen to be able to do more than just hang on in this crazy era. We talked last week about how we have a crisis of credibility in our culture. And we said that in the end, we talked a lot about character last week, you might remember. And if you didn't get to check that out, it's online. You can find it on our YouTube channel. Um, it's easy to find from the website. It's easy to find from YouTube. Um, in fact, just media, the media tab on our website has links to uh, years and years and years worth of audio and uh, certainly all the video that we've put together since the beginning of the pandemic. So... Um, so credibility, if we have a crisis of credibility, we sort of said, look, if you want to earn credibility in the culture around you, there's actually a formula for it. And the credibility formula works like this. It's character. You got to have character in the equation. Without character in the equation, you see a, a lot of loss of things, right? I mean, again, I, I think a couple of football coaches been in the news lately for character issues, essentially. Character really matters. The world wants to tell us, no, it doesn't. But then it, it turns out it really, really matters does. So it's character plus competence. You've got to have a sense of, I do what I do. I do it faithfully. I do it well. And courage, right? Character plus competence plus courage. We talked about character and competence to some degree last week. Today, I want to talk a little bit about competence, but even more so about courage today. So if you have your Bibles, you should be fairly familiar with Daniel 1 at this point because we've looked at it from a variety of different angles. I want to come right back to it today. Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to pick up today in verse 3. You know that in the first couple of verses, it basically told us that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had marched into Jerusalem, that he had taken uh, somewhere between six and 10,000 of the leaders of Israel, sort of the best and brightest of their day. I mean, it really, if you, want to, um, if you want to decimate a culture, take away its leaders, take away its best people, and see what happens in the ensuing chaos. So he took all those, and of course, he took things from the temple of God, uh, the temple of, of Yahweh, back to Babylon. So this was seen as a religious battle as well. And verse 3 says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be, <clears throat> excuse me, they were to be trained for three years. After that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah. There was Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. You've probably seen and heard these before to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. But you couldn't have told me that that was his name, most likely. Uh, you, you know him as Daniel, but the other three, you know by their Babylonian names. The chief official gave them new names, right? Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So there was a moment where Daniel said, look, I can't do anything about the fact that you've taken me here. I can't do anything about what you've done to my homeland. I am a prisoner of war. I can't do anything about what you um, 
forced me to learn, what you forced me to do with my daily activity. I can't do anything about that, but I can do something about what I put in myself, particularly as it applies to worship. And we talked about last week how this resolve not to defile himself meant that he purposed in his heart. He, he put out in front of himself the need to not degrade to not pollute his own soul, that his worship of Yahweh mattered, that he was basically drawing a line in the sand that said, you can take me out of my homeland and you can put me into Babylon, but I'm not going to let you put Babylon into me. That that's the line he was drawing in the sand. And it had to do with worship and his worship of Yahweh. I think I'm going to mention this just, just so we're all in the loop. There's some disagreement about whether this is for sure true, but I, I think it likely is, so I'm going to mention it. It's just hidden in the text, right? Verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, right? It, 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 he was the chief eunuch, and Daniel was brought into the king's service. There is every indication to sort of indicate that these four young men were made eunuchs as well. That is to say that they were robbed of their maleness. And I think about the humiliation involved in that. Not that it's good to be male and bad to be female. I don't mean that at all. God made them male and female in his image. He created them. But I do mean that likely these young men had this significant piece of their lives stripped from them as well. And yet where Daniel draws the line is this sense that you're not going to make me Babylonian. What I want to convince you of today, the, the thing I, I, I want, the one thing that I want to try to show you today and convince you of today is that we all want to be Daniels in a sense, right? We all want to make a difference, don't we? Don't we long to make a difference in this world, to know that our names matter, that our lives mattered, that in some sphere, somewhere, in some circle, somewhere that our lives made a difference. If I want to make a difference, I have to be different. That's what I'm trying to teach us today. I'm sure I didn't originate this phrase. I think I heard it quite a long time ago. I couldn't tell you where. I'm uh, just trying to be straight about that. But if I want to make a difference, I have to be different. Doesn't that make sense? Daniel was different than the rest of the culture around him, and God elevated him because so. So many people today are driven by one of two factors, especially at the chaotic times we see in the pandemic and the chaotic times in our political system. Two factors you see drive people today. One, fear. Everywhere you go, you hear a whole lot of fear, whether it's fear of the pandemic or fear of the other side of the politics or fear of the pandemic measures and what the government has done or fear of masks or fear of vaccines or fear of the virus or fear of... There's just a whole lot of fear. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not down on being cautious I've clearly led us to a balanced approach to the pandemic that says the pandemic is real. We need to be mindful of that. But I've also led us to say, look, we are people of God. We're going to follow Jesus. That's what matters in the end, right? So I'm not talking about caution here, but deep in many hearts in our culture is a fear about loss of a way of life. 
The other driving factor I see show up, and these two can go together, you do see them feed off each other, is not only fear but anger. Look around our culture today, open social media today, spend any time on any media of any kind today, and you will see the anger that exists among people, right? All of the stories about school boards and things that happen there, or, and, and, and sometimes understandably so, that there is anger. But anger is everywhere you look in culture today, that there is this pent-up sense of anger. And I'm trying to challenge us to not be driven by fear and anger, to be people like Daniel who choose courage and the courage to be driven by something else, more specifically by someone else. And last week we talked about how God develops character and character if built right prevents us really from being driven by anger. Again, it doesn't keep us from getting angry but there's a difference between getting angry and staying angry. It prevents us from being driven by anger. Today, we're going to talk about courage. Courage prevents us from being driven by fear. So the question I really want to ask you today is where does your courage come from? If I want to make a difference, I have to be different. Where does your courage come from? come from. I did a sort of article search of that, looking at, um, you know, the place where you find all answers in the world today, you know, hey Google. And so I read a number of articles written about how to be a more courageous person, how to find more courage, how to be more courageous in the workplace, how to, and it was all courage-driven stuff, and it actually was pretty good stuff, but every one of those things basically said, you look within you, and you take a little step of courage at a time, and you overcome. Some article I read suggested that nature plays a role and nurture plays a role. And that would make sense because it's true in so many things in life. In fact, this comes right from an article I read, right, that nature plays a role in determining who has courage. Research in neuroscience shows that some people have a thrill-seeking or type T personality, that the brain structures of these sensation-seeking people seem somewhat different from the brain structure of those who avoid risks. And that is not to define courage solely in the sense of like thrill seekers, right? But there is literally a brain structure difference in people who like to, you know, base jump and jump off, you know, or, or climb, free climb something at Yosemite, right? Right? There's, there's something different in the brain and you're like, yeah, yeah, you didn't have to like do research to tell me that. There's, there's definitely something different in the brain on that. It was interesting. I mean, that same article said T, type T individuals may have, this is speculation, but fewer dopamine receptors in their brains to record sensations of pleasure and satisfaction. And as such, they may require higher levels of stimulant and endorphin activity in order to find the same feel good that others find in everyday life. So nature plays a role. There was quite a bit in the article about personality, that nurture plays a role, right? Our psychological makeup, our values, our beliefs, the conditioning of how we were raised and who we spend time with in our world. All of those things make a difference. And the article began to talk about how we do things to help ourselves find more courage, to create certain scenarios, to recognize negativity bias, to talk ourselves out of the fear that's lying beneath what we're really afraid of, to practice stepping out of your comfort zone a little here and a little there, to manage your body and learn how to control your heartbeat 
to recognize that you are not alone, that you're not the only person who's ever faced fear. And much of this was about what you do inside of you. And I'm not going to say that those things can't help. But what I am going to say is that at the end of the day, you're going to find courage from some inspiration. That courage might come from yourself. That courage might come from heroes. That courage might come from friends, from parents, from kids. That courage, on the other hand, might come, this would make sense as Christian people, wouldn't it? From God, from Jesus. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, he who is not every day conquering some fear has not learned the secret of life. And I think there is a sense in which we all have fears these days. But for the Christian, courage is not getting rid of fear. In fact, courage is not at all just the absence of fear. Courage is overcoming them, right? Courage for the Christian, I, I think this is the next set of blanks I've got for you. Yeah, for the Christian, courage is not the absence of fear, but the presence of faith put into action. Right? It's not, hey, I, hey, when I stop having fear, then I'll act courageous. It's saying, yes, I have fear, but I also have the presence of faith. So there's the presence of fear, but there's also the presence of faith. And the presence of faith is going to help me put my faith into action. What I'm saying is that courage comes from our walk with Jesus. That courage comes from being filled with his spirit. This makes sense, doesn't it? And so we are reminded that courage is not limited to a battlefield or to the Indianapolis 500 or to running into a, a catching, chasing down a thief in your house, that real tests of courage are often much deeper and in everyday life are even much quieter, that there are inner tests and when we have to remain faithful when nobody's looking, that takes courage. When we're enduring pain when no one else is around, that takes courage. Standing alone when we're misunderstood, standing up to power in certain situations. Courage is not just something of heroes and superheroes. I think of the child battling cancer or the middle-aged adult recovering from the long-term effects of a stroke. That takes courage. I think of moms and dads standing in the gap for their kids. I think of healthcare professionals who are serving away in the midst of a pandemic. I think of college students who pursue an education even though volumes of memorization don't come easy for them. I think of men and women who get up every day and go to work and put in the time to be an influence for the kingdom of God. I think about all of us who do our best every day not to cave in through all the chaos of the pandemic. I think of the person for whom life is so challenging and so difficult that just to get out of the bed in the morning is a difficult step. There's courage in that. I think about the emotional courage it takes to overcome depression or anxiety. Yes, I do think about soldiers who go into battle. And as much as I talk about things like sports and football, and no, I don't think about a guy who gets paid billions of dollars, might as well be, right? 
Courage is to take the platform you have and use it for good. And to risk all that for good. So if Christian courage is rooted in our walk with Jesus, then what are some keys for developing courage in difficult times? How do we learn from Daniel? What specifically do we learn from Daniel about our walk with Jesus? I'm going to give you four of them. Number one, I want to challenge you to continue to follow Jesus when evil appears to be winning. If you want to develop courage in your life, I want to develop courage in my life then I want to challenge you to make a definitive decision in your life that when evil appears to be winning, either way, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus. No matter what evil appears to be doing, no matter what evil appears, how evil appears to be winning in the world, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus no matter what. So think about Daniel's circumstances and think about Daniel's situation. Nebuchadnezzar has marched in Jerusalem. He has killed the families of many people. He has taken over uh, thousands at this point, people who are leaders as prisoners of war, people from the royal family. He has marched them all of those miles from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And there's this whole underlying theme in the entire book of Daniel that comes out of verse 2 and 3, right? Uh, verse 2, that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that the Lord did this, but he also allowed some of the articles to be carried off from the temple of God. And Nebuchadnezzar carried off these articles and put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. And all of the people would say, see, Babylon's God wins. More specifically, God's plural. The Babylonians were a pluralistic sort of faith. They're, they're religious take would have been that there are many gods, laters, the Greeks, the Romans, right? In fact, most of the civilizations of the world, dare I say, all the civilizations of the world have their gods, little g gods, plural. So do we, so do us. This, I told this, you guys this last week. The idea that Americans are not religious anymore, what we, what we really mean is they're not church people anymore. They're still very religious. Everybody worships something. So what do you do when evil appears to be winning? Do you give up on God? I'd encourage you to continue to follow Jesus like Daniel did. Not because Daniel is God, but there is a subtle yet very clear theme hidden in verses 1 and 2, carried out by the end of the chapter in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. Right? The chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar's victories, but it ends with this verse. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is different king later. In fact, he's a bunch of kings, a bunch of rulers later. And it's a, Cyrus leads another kingdom who conquered Babylon. Say so Daniel outlasted all of it. The real theme of the book of Daniel is God wins. Flat out, God wins. It happens to be the same thing that is taught by another very misunderstood, confusing book of the Bible that's back here at the back. 
I will say to you over and over and over in this series, I know some of you are deep, deep lovers of prophecy. I love prophecy as well, but I'm going to tell you, prophecy is meant to convince us that Jesus is king. Prophecy is meant to convince us to be confident in Jesus. Beyond that, there is a billion dollars, almost a minute, built into speculation. Write a book speculating about the end of the world, you will be rich. You will also be wrong. Sorry. Find me the guy who says, I know the date and the time. And I will tell you that Jesus said, I don't know the date and the time. The point of prophecy is to make us confident in Jesus Confident that Jesus is king. Confident that evil does not win. Now, does that mean that we just throw out the confusing parts and the hard parts and we don't explore them? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We're making our way through the book of Daniel. We'll get to the prophetic sections. It will be challenging for us. Some of it's about history. Some of it's about the future. I don't have it all figured out. I don't spend in my own take on it a whole lot of time on speculative thought. I'm just telling you that up front. And the reason I don't is because if I begin to speculate and tell you that this means this, and this means this, and this is this person, and this is this person, I will, like everybody else who have done the same thing for thousands of years now, I will be wrong. And so I'm just going to take us to it and say, God knows. But the bigger point is God wins. That the kingdom of God wins. So the question I have for us, I think, is do I and do you have the courage to trust God when God allows things that make it look like evil is winning? Do you have the courage to trust God when God allows things for which you might be legitimately angry about? When God allows a pandemic, when God allows a nation to do X, Y, Z, when God allows your favorite team to lose, when I'm making fun of us there, when God allows the hardest things that go on in life, the most painful things that go on in life, you will be tempted to abandon your faith in God. Don't you think that there were plenty of the Judah, Judahites, the, the Israelites, who would have said to Daniel, like, man, like, God is lost. Like, give it up, dude. Like, there's no point, bro. Daniel was not giving in to that. And because he didn't, Daniel ended up with a sphere of influence that got progressively bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's part of how God won, right? In fact, Daniel prophesies a kingdom that's coming. We'll see Daniel 2 next week that there's a kingdom coming that will conquer all the kingdoms of the world. Daniel's influence grew stronger and stronger and stronger, not just with Nebuchadnezzar, but with other leaders. And you have a sphere of influence as well. Your family, your workplace, your business, your teammates, your neighbors, your teachers, your professors, your classmates, will you ask God to give you the courage to use your platform or your sphere 
to be influential for his kingdom? Because influence is inevitable. The direction of the influence is in question, but the fact of influence is inevitable. And if I want to be influential, I have to become invaluable like Daniel did. I would note for you, though, that God's way of winning, not at all the world's way of winning. Part of the point of the book of Daniel, again, is that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and they devastate one another, one after another, after another, after another. And there is a kingdom coming who will conquer all the kingdoms of the world, but I want you to look at the way the kingdom of Jesus has won. Well, I let that drive me today. I spent a lot of time there. I know I camped out a long time there. Don't worry. I know what time it is. Number two. Not only do I need to continue to follow Jesus when evil appears to be winning, I need to determine to trust Jesus to be the judge of my life, judge of my actions, judge of my results, my outcomes. I need to determine to trust Jesus to be the judge of my life. In essence, I'm saying that I must determine to live for an audience of one. I've had open conversations. I'm I'm going to pull back the onion of Brian's brain, and it's going to scare you a bit. I apologize for that. But, But I've talked to pastor after pastor and friend after friend who lead churches. And the pandemic has rocked most churches all across the world, like it has most other businesses, right? And in church world, we have a tendency to think we're the only ones. Now, why we do that, why we think that, I have no idea. But your workplace has gotten more difficult, hasn't it? Yeah, right. So church has as well, right? And, and so many of us find ourselves discouraged when the numbers go down and go down and go down. And I've talked with friend after friend where I've said, look, I don't know necessarily how to practice this pure-heartedly, but what I know is that if I look at the metrics these days, any kind of metric you can measure, it's likely discouraging. And so you have to ignore the metrics, and here's the point I'm trying to make. We don't do what we do solely for people. People are the mission. We're never going to forget that people are the mission. We're going to reach people. That's the great commission. We were challenged to do that. We're never going to forget that. But people aren't the audience. We serve an audience of one. So this could be an empty room. And God's question to Brian is, Brian, will you be faithful to preach the gospel? In fact, in the darkest days of the pandemic, it was literally an empty room. Of course, there was an eye on the other side that still is back there. And thankfully, we have the technology to do what we did in those dark days. Well, I determined to trust Jesus to be the judge of my actions and my results, the judge of my life. I want to take you to that name section for just a moment. Daniel's name was changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar, Hananiah from Hananiah to Shadrach, Mishael from Mishael to Meshach, Azariah from Azariah to Abednego. You've probably heard this before, but I want to make it clear to you. All four of those Hebrew names are names connected to God, to Yahweh, to the worship of the Israelite God. All four of those Babylonian names are connected to Babylonian gods. Belteshazzar is made Bel, Bel, the god Bel, Babylonian god Bel, protect my life. 
Shadrach's name means command of Aku. Meshach's name means who is what Aku is. Abednego's name means servant of Nebo, like Nebuchadnezzar. The reality is all of them were given new names to reflect the Babylonian religious life. Daniel does this interesting thing. I have tried and tried and tried to figure this out. I have the simplest of explanations because at the end of the day, simple is often the real explanation, right, in life. So Daniel, you, what is Daniel's name? Tell me, what's Daniel's name? How do you know Daniel? Yeah. It's Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just told you their Hebrew names. Ananias. Thank you. What else? Israel. What else? I, that, is, that is correct. How many of you could name them three months ago? No. Now, why does Daniel insist throughout the book that, Dan, in fact, occasionally, he tells the story in third person, and he calls himself Daniel, and then he will say, whom is also called Belteshazzar? But he insists that his name is Daniel. But we know the other three guys by their non-Hebrew names, by their Babylonian names. I think the simplest explanation is this. We know them from their big story, Daniel 3. And their big story, what are their names? Rakshak and Benny, right? Right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that, we know them by their big story. It's sort of what they're known for. Right? Tell me what they did in the Bible. Oh, the three young Hebrew guys in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is why we know their names as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel is clear on this, that he will not let himself be known for the ages as Belteshazzar. Now, here's what's interesting. Daniel's name means God is my judge. El, at the end, is the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for God. El is short for Elohim, if you've ever heard that name for God, E-L. So you see a lot of biblical names that end with Ayah, which is short for the reference to Yahweh, Hananiah, etc. You see a lot of names that end with E-L. See, anytime you hear any of those names, it has to do with God. Daniel's name means God is my judge. I think when Daniel writes the book, he is over and over and over saying, Babylon is not my judge. Nebuchadnezzar is not my judge. The Hebrew people I serve for and with are not my judge. God is my judge. This tells us a lot about what to do when we face Pressure to abandon God. Because at the end of the day, he says, it's not about all those other people. This is about my God. And my God is my judge. And that's why Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Does this make sense? Because God was going to judge Daniel. A judge is a word we don't like. And yet we do it all the time. We judge people constantly. We judge ourselves constantly. 
We determine that we are losers, that we are failures, that we are successes, that we are the best, that we are the goat, that we are, we judge everything. Daniel says, I'm not letting everybody else drive that. God is my judge. Number three, you want to be a courageous person? Resolve. This is about deciding in advance to obey Jesus even when you're under great pressure not to. You resolve to obey Jesus even when under great pressure not to. Clearly, Daniel resolved, right? Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, not to pollute himself. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Clearly, both Daniel and as you have read the story, that, right? you know the story, right? Daniel goes to the chief official and he says, hey, I don't want to defile myself with the royal food and wine. And the chief official, the chief eunuch, says, hey, look, if you four guys don't look like you're eating and drinking the king's stuff, it's going to be my head on the chopping block. There is reason for fear here of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel proposes this win-win scenario, right? Where he says, let's do this test. Give us 10 days. Let us eat, you know, the, 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 the best vegan vegetable diet you got, right? We're not going to drink the stuff. We're going we're gonna to live off water and veggies, basically. You feed us that and you see after 10 days if we're not in better shape, if we're not better people than all those other people. And the test was not of the food. The test was of Daniel and his God. In 10 days, it says that he looked better, that they looked better than everybody else, that they were in better shape than everybody else. And the, the chief eunuch was like, all right, we can do this. Right? The eunuch had to find courage somewhere. And Daniel encouraged him to find eunuch by, by using wisdom and tact, by using respect to be able to treat him as a way, right? Daniel didn't walk in and say, you're my enemy, I hate you. But he walked in and said, okay, here's where I'm gonna draw the line, here's what I can't do, but I'm gonna be very respectful in how I interact with you. I'm gonna be very respectful and very kind in the way I treat you. Let's find a win-win that works for both of us so that I can honor my God and so that you can keep your head. I think I see a great picture in this of the way the culture around us pressures us to abandon God and just fit in. Think about all the social pressures we face, the pressures to abandon our faith. Peer pressure, you won't be cool if you don't abandon your faith, right? Family pressures who say, we won't include you if you decide to be a Christian. Work pressures that say, you won't be promoted if. Political pressure, you won't have power if. Educational pressure, you're dumb, you're an idiot if. Emotional pressure, you're a loser if. Societal pressure, you're not going to be accepted if. You're not going to be successful if. Those pressures exist around us, around the clock, Daniel said, resolve not to defile myself. Of course, as Christians, we need to learn the difference between courage and wisdom, right? Daniel had both. He had both courage and wisdom. And instead of the word wisdom, you could use the word judgment. I, I heard a little story the other day. It was funny. I think it's worth hearing. It's about a bull that loved to chew his food beneath a particular shade tree. 
And that particular tree was great. It was a perfect place to eat. So he would go there every day and he would chew his food. And then like most of us, he wanted to lay down for a warm afternoon nap. So he would lay there under that shade tree, and day after day after day, not far from there, was some railroad tracks, and day after day, a train would come through, and those horns would blare and interrupt his nap. And one day, the bull got so mad, he said, I can't do this anymore. I am a courageous bull. I've got this. He said, I'm so sick of that horn. I'm so sick of that train. And so the bull did everything he could. He mustered up all the courage he had. He went out into the middle of those tracks. He could hear the horn a mile away. He did what bulls do, you know, and <clears throat> train versus bull. Hamburger, exactly. So long after the accident, many days as the conductor went by, the conductor would tip his hat to that bull, and he would say, bull, I admire your courage. I question your judgment. Daniel knew when to draw a line in the sand and when not to. I've been in the offensive business lately telling us some things that we don't always want to hear, so I'm probably going to offend you with this one. I, I don't apologize for it, but, but I'm going to tell you, a lot of us have drawn a lot of lines in the sands over the pandemic. And a lot of us have said the reason we've done it is our faith. And I just want you to be able to distinguish between I'm doing it because of my faith and I'm doing it because of my personal values. And of course, your personal values should come. But I have heard every last line done in the name of politics and then God used to support it on both sides of the aisle. God is not about red versus blue. Is it okay to stand up for your values? Totally, completely. But don't put God in the middle of it if it's about politics. Because God is bigger than the boogeyman. It's what VeggieTales taught me. In fact, I think that VeggieTales was linked to this book. God's bigger than the boogeyman, right or left. Daniel knew when to draw a line in the sand. He had both wisdom, judgment, and courage. One last thing. This all comes back to my courage, my source for courage. It comes from my walk of Jesus, with Jesus. If I'm going to make a difference, I've got to be different. Where does my courage come from? Number four, embrace my faith to see past the visible king, Nebuchadnezzar, to the invisible king. That's what I need, and that's where I will find courage in my life to see past the visible king and all the fear that goes along with that, to see the invisible king and all the love and all the grace and all the wisdom that he offers. In essence, I'm saying that I need to ask Jesus for the courage to see God's hand when nobody else can see God's hand. That hand of God thing is throughout the book of Daniel, but it shows up as early as verse two. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And the Lord did it. Will you look for the hand of the Lord everywhere you go in everything you do? Because God's hand is the hand of courage. Most people thought that Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for their circumstances and they hated him for it. 
And in American life, I watch the same thing play out every single day. People who believe that politician on that side or politician on that side is responsible for their circumstances and they hate each other for it. Will you have the courage to be a Daniel and say, I refuse that way of life? Because the way of hate is not the way of God. Again, I'm not talking about not standing for right and wrong. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. But Daniel could have hated Nebuchadnezzar for the rest of his life, and he wound up serving Nebuchadnezzar. By the end of the chapter, he is promoted. By the end of chapter 2, he is promoted again. His friends are promoted again. They're promoted, they're promoted, they're promoted That is the hand of God. And every time God opened a door, Daniel courageously said, God, I'm in. Because Daniel could see what no one else sees, God's sovereignty. Most people in their day would have said, Daniel, give it up. God has abandoned you. Give up your faith. Why do you keep insisting that God is here? We're in Babylon. God is not here. And Daniel said, oh, 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 if you think God's not here, you don't know God. And he saw the hand of God at work in everything he did. I'd like to have that in my life, wouldn't you? I'd like to have more of that in my life, wouldn't you? See, all along, Daniel was promoted and promoted and promoted. But be clear, Daniel was not seeking promotion. He was not seeking the reward of the visible king. He was serving the invisible king, the king of kings. And for that reason, he had courage because that king of kings gave him courage. And I want to be more like Daniel. You and I, if I want to make a difference... We have to be different. I want to pray that for your life, can I? In fact, I don't really want to pray it. I do want to pray it for you, but I want to pray it with you. I want you to pray it. So we always end with two prayers. Our first is a prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today, the Jesus that this Bible tells us about, the Jesus who is the King of kings, who conquered all kingdoms, the Jesus who laid down his life in love and grace and mercy and compassion, the Jesus who lives today as King of kings and Lord of lords, who will return one day to be king forever. If you need that Jesus, he offers himself. And he offers his salvation and says, will you take it? Will you let me be your king? Jesus offers You can receive him even online, right here, right now. You just pray with me right now, just like this. Dear Jesus, you're the king, and I'm not. And you're God, and I'm not. And I confess that and admit that. In fact, Jesus, I am flawed, I fall short. I'm sinful. So please forgive my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I put my faith in you. 
and I ask you to take over my life and be the king of kings in my life. All of my heart, I give to you, Jesus. Be my God. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, man, we celebrate that. That is the coolest, best decision you will ever make. We'd love to talk with you more about it. I'd love to know about it. You can tell someone who invited you. You can tell me in a little bit. If you're online, you can tell me on the digital communication card. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at harvestchurcheugene.com. But man, tell somebody because we want to celebrate that. I said we always end with two prayers. We want salvation to be front and center. But we want all of us who've received that salvation to be disciples who follow Jesus. And I want you in a sense of courage, I dare you to pray this prayer of application. Dear Jesus, I need you to make me different. Mold my character. Make me competent. Give me courage. Take my eyes off my fears. Feed my faith. Jesus, put my faith into action. Strengthen me when it looks like evil is winning. Give me resolve to trust you. You alone is the audience of my life. Help me choose to obey you when there's every pressure not to. Give me vision, Jesus, to see what no one else sees, to see your invisible hand. at work in these crazy, chaotic times. In essence, the prayer is the same. Be my God and be my King, Jesus. Lord, I pray this with and for all of my friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. He's good. The Bible gives us every reason to be confident in Jesus. That's how we thrive. That's the mindset shift that allows us to not just survive all the craziness that's out there in this world. It's never about the craziness going away. It's about Jesus being the King of Kings in my life. So I want you to go today. I guess I should remember. I, I want you to remember the communication cards, and as you go, remember the baskets and the little offering box. Again, if you're our guest, the offering is not what we're after. But I want you to go today, and I want you to go today with confidence in our King. Can you do that? You with me? All right, let's live for him. I love you guys. Online, I love you guys too. Thanks for worshiping Jesus with us today.